0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. I am Dr Autonomy, and I have got a full house in here today. I'm not even going to run through the names yet. I'm going to tell you about them all a bit later, but just to say it is a hot show today... Uh, One of the reasons it's such a big show is we have two extra special guests joining us today. The first is Dr. Elise Bailieu. Now if you were listening to radiotherapy a month ago you might have heard Miss Medic and I make a pledge to follow a book called The Happiness Plan by Dr. Elise Bailieu which required us to meditate every night for 28 days and read a few pages from the book each night Uh, and the month is up so I'm very Mm -hmm. excited to hear from Miss Medic how she went. Um, I've got a bit of feedback (laughs) Uh, and so So we are very lucky to have Dr. Elise Bally joining us today, the author of this book and also founder of Mindful in May to uh, tell us all about it and uh, tell us all about meditation in general. It's going to be very wonderful. As well as Dr. Elise Bailey, we have got Dr. Anthea Rhodes joining us today too. Uh, You will probably remember Dr. Anthea Rhodes because she's really becoming a a good friend of the show these days. She's been in quite a few times. She's a paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital and director of the RCH National Child Health Poll. So she's going to be coming in today to talk about the latest child health poll, which is all about oral health in children and in preparation for her segment i did book my son into the dentist last week well done <laughs> nothing like a deadline nothing like a deadline <laughs> so as well as that we've got a full house of regulars to uh, bring you medical stories from the week so it's about time to grab a cup of coffee and join us as we fill in the hour until 11 o'clock doctor, doctor give me the news i gotta Hello, everyone. It is all happening in the studio. Miss Medic, you're looking relaxed Mm. and calm. Because I rushed from yoga to be
2: here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This is the thing about, you know, incorporating all of these things that are good for us that, you know, they can make us feel more busy, but I think that the the positive aspects certainly outweigh any of the negative.
1: That's what I think I've come to. I can't wait to hear more. Mm. Dr. Malice, good morning.
3: Hello, hello, hello. How are you? I'm so relieved, especially since we're going to hear about dental health issues for children. I'm at the other end of the life cycle and had my first ever root canal treatment. So thank you to my dentist and dental assistant. An incredible, wonderful experience. I mean, meaning in terms of before and after. Not, yeah, not, the, not the process.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like the I was going to be what? What mm. happened during your ukulele? Yeah, <laughs> anyway. lolly
1: duck. Good morning. Good morning.
0: I'm leaving all of that alone. I've been parenting this this week. And I've been making sure that my children's academic, uh, emotional, psychological, mental, spiritual, physical, nutritional and social needs are met while being careful not to overstimulate them, understimulate them, improperly medicate them, helicopter, (laughs) neglect them in a screen-free, processed foods-free, GMO-free, negative energy-free, plastic-free body, positive, socially conscious, egalitarian but also authoritative... Nurturing, but fostering with independence, gentle but not overly permissive. Preferably in a cul de sac with a backyard and 1.5 siblings, but I've actually got two, so I've overdone it. Spaced at least two years apart. Overachiever. And I haven't forgotten the coconut oil. And it- <laughs> All's good.
1: No wonder we're all stressed. What a job description. Yeah. I'm exhausted. I'm now. happy, though. Pardon? I'm happy. Good. Well, you don't the book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and
4: Dr. Elise Bailey, good morning to you. Good morning. I, I can relate to, to the last person that just shared their experience. I just came <coughs> rushing from my living room dancing, We Are Family. my oh, <laughs> two-and-a-half-year-old to get fired up for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever
1: works. And Dr. Anthea Rhodes, hello. Good morning to you. Good morning. We've got a full house. I, I don't have. think we've ever had quite so many people in the studio and I'm loving it. So, in the interests of moving right along, I think we might start with a few news stories from the week and then we will get to our special guests. But, uh, Lolly Doc, let's start with you.
0: I just wanted to pay homage, as many people have this week, to uh, Professor Stephen Hawking, who Mm. died on the 14th of March, um, and to probably utilise um, his public life to, um, I guess, promote motor neurone disease as a topic of research. So, um, Professor Stephen Hawking had a, an unusual form of motor neurone disease called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is just a subtype of motor neurone disease. Motor neurone disease uh, is an illness that affects the motor neurons in um, people's body, and the motor neurons are the things that help us control voluntary muscles. So, um, you know, taking an action of picking up a glass, or uh, taking a big breath in when you think about it, or uh, swallowing. Um, now some of these things are involuntary but a lot of those have voluntary control as well and as the illness progresses you lose those uh, voluntary controls um, and respiratory and swallowing problems become a real issue. Um, Stephen Hawking had an unusual um, illness because it was early onset and it was slowly progressive and that's not usually how motor neurone disease presents. It usually presents in your 50s or 60s um, and the life of um, Span from diagnosis to death is, is really short. It's two to four years. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible illness. We don't know why it happens. Mm. Um, about 5 to 10% are genetic um, and the rest are, we don't know. Um, so he was an amazing guy. Um, with all the disability that he had, he was incredibly able mm. and um, Amazing really. And there's been lots of things on social media about all the amazing things that he did. Um, My favourite moment for Stephen Hawking was um, he had an interview with John Oliver, you know, uh, the satirical, Mm. um, I guess, news guy from the States. And I think that was in 2014. And Stephen Hawking was a, a firm believer in multi-universe theory so that there are multiple parallel universes where anything's possible and john oliver said isn't one of those universes is it possible that i'm more intelligent than you are Stephen?" and Stephen said no (laughs) (laughs) and i think that summed him up well
1: yeah how lucky we all were that he was able to live such a long life despite that illness Mm. and just while we're on that
2: there is um Someone that I've known from my past in medicine, the, a, a doctor, a fellow doctor um, who is suffering from motor neurone disease, I, I knew his wife, um, has started an organisation called fightmnd.org.au if you want the website. And that's worth a look because this is a horrible illness. It strikes young people in the prime of their life. Um, the prognosis is pretty bloody horrible and um there's lots of efforts underway to raise money so that we can better treat better understand and eventually cure this horrible disease so if you're interested please have a look at fightmnd.org.au thank you
1: (sighs) deep breath (sighs) dr malice i think you have also been scouring the newspapers and have (laughs) Wow, that was an interesting mic turn, have found something that you'd like to mention today.
3: Well, I think in the spirit of Stephen Hawkins, not only were his achievements in themselves incredible, but the inspiration that he provided for all people with all forms of disability, that that is not actually an impediment to a full life (laughs) And the favourite moment I had with him was he was the uh, opening speaker at the uh, London Paralympics in 2012, and in centre stage in his wheelchair, and obviously the audition uh, went out, not him speaking, but uh, recorded, but the inspiration to all the athletes and and the rest of us, just... Not only the inspiration for disability, but by the grace of God, we go when we don't have a disability. I mean, it's a humbling experience to have lived in an era that he actually presided over Mm. in, in the way that he did, let alone his knowledge and incredible insights into the universe, which we never even can think of.
1: You think about all the little things that trip us all up on a day-to-day basis and the things that make us believe, oh, our day's ruined and this isn't going well and I can't do that. And then you look at someone like Stephen Hawking and the mindset he was able to maintain and what he was able to achieve despite his uh, handicaps. It's Mm -hmm. just remarkable.
3: Now, in that spirit of inspiration and with at least uh, giving us a a later uh, an insight into what meditation is... I thought there might be a bridging opportunity between the what often is erroneously called the soft issues of meditation and the benefits of the relaxation movement and happiness movement and what's erroneously called the heart science which is the physiological biological medicine and the bridge has come in the form of a paper from france which uh, for those who in as listeners or people who you know who suffer with crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis the inflammatory conditions of the bowel has the most incredible disabling quality, not only on lifestyle, but in fact, longevity and quality of life uh, overall. So the traditional treatment has always been massive doses of various forms of chemicals to reduce the inflammation, and in the end point, various forms of surgery to cut out the affected bowel. This has been the tradition that we practiced in medicine, and it's really time-honored. Until, ta-da, there's a game changer going on, which will be discussed, I think, later, which is the brain-gut axis or the brain-gut link. And the phenomenal link between these two previously thought disparate organs, the brain up at the top, the gut down below, is a thing called the vagus nerve. And lo and behold, in France, there's a group, a multidisciplinary group, who decided on the most ingenious intervention in Crohn's disease, chronic inflammation of the bowel. And that is, why not use the principle that people know about in heart arrhythmias? What you put in for people with heart arrhythmias nowadays is a pacemaker. And the little device overrides the irregularities of that rhythm. Now, that's the principle they applied to the vagus nerve. Why? Because the vagus nerve actually supplies the gut down below. And if it's under-stimulating the bowel, it is thought to pre- predispose to inflammation and chronic inflammation. So what do these brilliant innovators, pioneers, do? They get a neurosurgeon to put a little implant of a pacemaker in the neck next to the vagus nerve, give it a regular pulse, much like the cardiac pacemaker, and follow up for six months. And lo and behold, five people out of the seven actually get normal returned vagal tone. And on the various ways that such research is conducted, biological, chemical, direct looking at the bowel through colonoscopy, and of course, self-report, five of them show improvement. This is something that is just so exciting <laughs> that this is at the cutting edge of what medicine in the best tradition is. You find out that the brain and the gut are connected. Let's do an experiment. And so it will lead in, I hope, when we discuss that meditation is not just about the head and do we feel better and so on. It actually flows down through the vagus nerve to the whole body. It's a total body experience and so we'll just see where that leads.
1: I cannot think of a better lead into a topic about the links between mind and body. Thank you, Dr. Malice. Okay, let me tell you all about Dr. Elise Bailey because we are about to do an interview with her live in the studio. She's the founder of Mindful in May, which you may well have heard about, no pun intended. <laughs> it's an online global mindfulness campaign that teaches thousands of people each year to meditate, while also raising funds to build clean water projects in the developing world. Elise is a doctor trained in psychiatry, but turned a social entrepreneur. I can never say that word, entrepreneur, Preneur. Preneur. doesn't sound, anyway. <laughs> She's passionate about supporting individuals and organisations to develop inner tools for greater wellness and flourishing. She offers workshops and corporate training at the Mind Life Project. Her work is featured in the Huffington Post, New York Times and on Australian television. Dr Elise Bailey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Miss Medic and I have been reading this beautiful book of yours called The Happiness Plan and uh, meditating each night for the last month was the plan. We'll get to that in a sec. Uh, But I guess before we get into how that was for us, I thought I would start with... things that I have read about you, I guess, in terms of your background. And one of them was that, as I just mentioned, you were originally trained uh, in psychiatry, but then somehow have moved to be running Mindful in May and writing books on happiness. Tell us
4: that story. So I, I went into psychiatry because I was really always fascinated by the human brain and mind. And from a very young age, I wanted to understand how we could use our brains and our minds to live our most meaningful and happiest lives So that led me to psychiatry and then along the path of psychiatry you know it, it wasn't a straight line for me and um, although I really valued the training and I learned some really really important things I, as I wrote in the book I was discovering that I was learning how to help people survive i.e. moving them from a state of extreme despair and suffering on the brink often of suicide coming back to okay and what I discovered was that what I was really passionate about was helping people move from that next stage of surviving to thriving and and I just, I, I was really curious to learn more about that. So I sort of stumbled into meditation and I have to say, was really not the typical person that you would imagine meditating. You know, I'm, I'm not by nature Zen and still I'm a real doer and I'm always active. Uh, but surprisingly to me, I discovered an education that completely blew my mind and just really intrigued me, led me to long term sort of silent meditation retreats and really helped bolster my own happiness and thriving and then started to share that with uh, clients and patients and then this idea for Mindful in May emerged actually in a meditation and and then the rest was history that sort of yanked me and 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 that was it I was on the road to a different path
1: what a beautiful lead in. One of the things that I've really loved as I have read the book over the last month is the little uh, the little bits of your own personal experience that sort of are woven into it. And um, in the final sort of chapter that I've been reading this week, which is where I guess for the first time in the book you, you talk about, you know, uh, creating a life of happiness and that is meaningful and uh, purposeful to the individual. You mentioned that the particular meditation that we do at the end of the book on happiness is one that you use sort of a couple of times a year to really hone your own uh, focus about what you're doing in life and and how things are going. And it, it led me to wonder how meditation and mindfulness has really influenced your life up until now? It's a big question, but can you speak to that a bit?
4: I think it's been it's been really profound. You know, I write in the book that I've I found through teaching and running workshops that a lot of people come to meditation because they want to manage their stress. That's kind of the portal in, but it has such a profoundly greater potential to transform our lives. And I think for me, it was really about... You know, I'd spent my whole career looking outward and studying the brain objectively, like he's a brain or he's a person. And, and, then, and then when I found Mindfulness Meditation, it was actually this turning the attention inward and investigating my own mind, which we can all do, and discovering how the mind works and observing what the mind does to amplify our suffering or amplify our happiness and actually training the mind through this practice to get better or training ourselves to get better at witnessing the mind and catching the mind when it is spiralling off into pathways that are going to create more suffering for, for us. And I think that is an absolute revelation because I think most people I know for myself before I started this training... I never realised that I had a choice. I thought that I was my mind, I was my thoughts and through this training a, a completely new relationship develops with you and your thoughts that transforms your life. <laughs> so it's, it's it really is profound and, you know, that's the reason why I was pretty much nearly at the end of becoming a psychiatrist but this passion that I discovered and, and I was completely compelled by this just pulled me and I just felt really driven to, to to spend my life teaching this and sharing this because it's had such an impact in my own life and also in the patients that I was sort of teaching the workshops for. Also, Miss Medic? I was just going to ask you, Elise, why do
2: you think that it's now that we really need something like mindfulness? Like what is it that's changed in the way that we live? Why is there so much... You know, there's like you described in psychiatry, there's a proportion of people really suffering, but there's almost the um, so probably the less severe, but suffering some kind of mental health symptoms. It seems to be extending wider into the population. Why do you think that is?
4: I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is technology. So Ray Kurzweil, who's one of the leading futurists in the world, I heard him speak and he said, you know, a a child in Africa that has access to a mobile phone has access to more information than the President of the United States had only 15 years ago. So that speaks to the world and how different it is. And I think that through social media, our, our attention is being fragmented. Uh, it's just there's an intrusiveness in our lives that wasn't there before there's a comparison that's often happening which is the death of happiness and so the world is really different and I think technology is expanding in a way that we can't even imagine what the world is going to look like in five years. And so, as I like to say, you know, we spend time upgrading our iPhones. We need to spend time upgrading (laughs) our inner technology of attention and the inner technology of our minds to keep up with this rapid change in the external world. I think one more thing is that, you know, the World Health Organization stated that by 2020, depression would be the leading cause of global burden of disease. Well, it's actually already that now. So, I mean, this is really an epidemic It's something that is urgent, that is urgently needing our attention. And I believe that just as, you know, we all wake up in the morning and we brush our teeth without even thinking about it, this is the new paradigm shift. And I I believe in sort of five years as a culture, we're going to understand that we really need to give attention and investment into our own minds if we're going to manage what's going on. In um, in one of the
1: meditations that you provide with the book, so I guess just to clarify, while reading the book, there's online meditations that you listen to and that they change sort of week to week, so there's different focuses. One of the meditations that you provide is called a thought meditation, and there's this phrase in that meditation that really spoke to me, which is something along the lines of, just as the eyes see, the nose smells, the mouth tastes, the mind thinks. And I think it really speaks to this concept that our mind is constantly on and constantly thinking it's what it's designed to do but rather than um, being swept away by whatever thoughts it's thinking meditation and mindfulness somehow allows us to grab back a little bit more control and a bit more space and have a bit more choice I think was a word you used before about um, how we respond to that
4: absolutely yeah Yeah, absolutely and I think the, the really interesting point there just relating to this concept of the soft the soft skills and the hardcore science skills, what excites me a lot and what really grabbed my attention was how much science there is that's supporting this practice. And in relation to what you've just said, not only as you practice do you get a new relationship and more choice around how you're relating to your thoughts and how much impact they're having on your stress levels, but your brain is actually changing. So it's a, it's a positive it's an upward spiral you know so as you practice meditation more you're actually rewiring pathways in your brain to make you better at not getting so caught up in your thinking so that's what i think is really exciting and that's really the basis whereby i see mindfulness as a foundation to greater resilience
1: you're listening to radiotherapy on 3 triple and we're talking to dr elise Bailey, our founder of mindful in may and author of a new book called the happiness plan Lolly
0: doc. I'm going to to use this uh, the button to move the microphone across so it doesn't go. "Eh."
1: Very clever. (laughs) I know.
0: I thought you'd like that. Um, Happiness is quite simple, isn't it? Um, It's a simple. uh, It's a simple feeling. Being happy, a moment of happiness, is quite simple. And and one of the things that I um, find with meditation, and as you guys know, I do meditate. Regularly, and my Headspace account got hacked, so I'm 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 back to to basics again. Yeah, yeah oh I know. No. That's hilarious. How that I got happen? I got ID fraud via Headspace. Anyway, You're kidding? No, it's just another story. Okay. Um, I guess what, what the point or the question that I want to make uh, to ask is how one of the things that i think meditation is terrific for is is simplifying our thought processes giving us moments to appreciate what is real and what isn't real iphone upgrading is not real but certainly enjoying dancing with your child uh, in the morning is very real um, how do you hang on to those moments outside of meditation
4: so that's a great question and actually I have a little bookmark here for a quote that I that I just want to read in response to that by Sharon Salzberg, who is a really incredible American meditation teacher, features in Martha May, she says meditation is a microcosm a model, a mirror, the skills we practice when we sit are transferable to the rest of our lives, so I'm really grateful for that question because meditation isn't about just doing this practice for 20 minutes a day and feeling calm and great and then going back to the other 23 and a half hours of day and being a nervous wreck. Uh, So your question about how do we hold on to it, I think it's more that through training the brain in this way, we are much better, we we get much quicker at recognising where our attention is at all times of the day. And when we're caught in irritation or frustration, anger, fear, anxiety, we have this inner reminder in fact mindfulness means to remember to familiarize and so it just helps us return to a state of equanimity balance much quicker than if we hadn't had that training. And I, I want to make clear it's, you know, this isn't sort of rose-coloured glasses, like this is going to get rid of all of these negative experiences. That's not the point of this practice. And and being human means that we are all going to feel difficult emotions, but it's this returning, like how quickly can you come back to being okay and letting go of whatever gets in the way of you being present and, and available to your life?
2: What I also loved in the book is that you... You talk about sort of other mindful moments that you can have during the day. It's not just when you're sitting on a cushion doing a 20-minute meditation but, you know, the mindful shower or the, you know, mindful cup of tea or eating a piece of chocolate and all those sorts of things. And I think that that's something that's really important to remember as well, that you can incorporate a mindfulness practice into something you automatically do so one of the things i started doing a while ago so i'm a general practitioner and so i spend you know, in between patients i walk down the corridor of my practice to pick up a patient a new patient and greet them in the waiting room and i'd use that walk as a mindful walk so i uh, you know, concentrate on the feeling of my feet in my shoes. You know, taking a step. Look, I think about my posture, and it's just a mindful walk. And it's a really nice way to sort of shut off from like I finished with one patient, sort of recenter and then I collect the next patient. And now, and like you said, it's my brain does this more like a habit now because I've done it so many times. And at first it was with intention. like I had to think, how could I incorporate a bit of mindfulness into my day, um, you know, mindful washing hands or whatever, but I decided to do it as the walk and now it's a habit. And so my brain automatically does that because my brain has changed, hmm. which is amazing.
1: There's, when I hear about, I guess, the power that we all have within our internal landscape to change our experience. I have a twofold reaction to it. One is immense excitement about the power that we all have within us to to have a different kind of life based on the way we choose to react to things. The other the other reaction I have is something along the lines of um, added pressure or something about what so is it all on me you know nothing that happens in the world is um, objectively bad or negative and if I'm having a hard life it's all my fault that sort of response do you have any reaction Mm. to that or can you help me with that
4: yeah absolutely so in the book I quote Sonia Lubomirsky a difficult surname like mine and she's one of the leaders in positive psychology and she talks in through her research she came up with these percentages so she found that you know 40% of our set happiness might be from genetics 10% might be from the life circumstances disease illness things that are out of our control and then the the remainder is actually what's within our control so in in response to your question it's not about you know it's not about burdensome and it's your fault if you're not happy but it's really about okay there are certain things that you can't control and there's certain things that you can control so of what you can control why not resource yourself so that you're adding positivity rather than adding suffering
1: Hmm. beautiful response i like that a lot you're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR with Dr Elise Bailey. And I guess we've been talking in a very first-hand way about our own experiences of meditation and mindfulness and how it's impacted us. But there is a lot of science behind this. And I'm of the understanding that you have actually run a bit of a pilot project in preparation for Mindful in May. Can you speak to that a little bit just to, I guess, broaden out this, this evidence base for us?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, a lot. So but first of all, there's about a 1,000 studies coming out a year around mindfulness in the scientific literature. So this is really, it's it's a hardcore scientific practice now. And a lot of these studies look at 30 to 40 minutes a day of meditation, and I'm really about trying to make this accessible to time-poor, busy people. So what I did was I did a research study on Mindful May, which is the program I run. It's a one-month Campaign basically inviting people to meditate for 10 minutes a day for the month. And I investigated, were there actually benefits? Were there measurable benefits? And the exciting news was, we just got this published in Mindfulness Journal, uh, that yes, in fact, 10 minutes a day for one month Um, improved people's sense of perceived stress so they were able to perceive stress and respond more effectively to it they had an increase in positive affect and a decrease in negative affect i.e emotional states and they had increasing self-compassion and greater presence focus and mindfulness and we also found that the more you were practicing the greater these benefits were now i do want to say there were limitations to the study it wasn't a randomized control trial there were definitely limitations but this is really exciting as a pilot as a pilot study
2: miss medic um the other thing you talk about in your book which i really like is and i think is very true it's the regularity that's important more than you know you can't just go on one mindfulness retreat uh a year and have the benefits It's that sort of 10 minutes a day, just like you can't eat, you know, a whole bucket of broccoli once a year and say, well, that's it. I've done my good eating for the year. So I really like that. It's about the regularity and and it slowly shifts. And I think that sometimes with my patients, one of the hurdles I've had when I introduce something like mindfulness is that they um, expect to just feel better at the time. And often at first, when you first sit down to meditate... Feels really uncomfortable, like because you're first, you're seeing how busy your brain is, and I've heard lots of people come back to me and go, "I just can't." Like my brain's really busy, and my response to to that is like, everybody's brain is really busy. Your brain's no busier than mine. Like you know, this is this is what this is for. This is for witnessing what our brain does, and it's that you have to get someone, which is why the probably the mindful in May and this book really works well, because if you can commit to a daily practice not even with the expectation that you're immediately going to feel good, but just see where you might get to after a month. Um, that's where I think it's really helpful and interesting.
4: Absolutely. And just to add there, I think that when you know a bit of the science, it gives you that motivational inspiration to keep going because just like when you're doing physical exercise, you go to the gym and you don't feel good for the first few weeks, the same with meditation, it just takes a while for the benefits to make themselves known
1: It's funny, you know I talk about mindfulness and meditation as well all the time in my clinical practice with clients and you think if anyone was going to be on board it would be a clinical psychologist and intellectually I am but when it comes to the point in my day where, which for me the time where I thought I was most likely to be able to do this was at the end of my day because I know that's the bit that I always have without anyone else around, um, and so, but it, but even with that intellectual commitment, I would get to that part of my day, and so often there would be so many barriers in my mind. I'm just I'm too tired. This, I need sleep more than I need meditation, or I'm just not in the right headspace tonight. Or I, yeah, it's, I mean, I could I could spend the rest of our show today listing all the barriers. <laughs> you know? um, and I think the the thing that literally got me over the line was that. I was gonna be interviewing you in a month and I had made this commitment to doing the meditation practice every night and I'd promised Miss Medic that I would be doing it and I knew she was doing it. And so that's what got me over the line and I never ever regretted having done it and that ten minutes of meditation was probably far more useful than an extra ten minutes of sleep or the ten minutes that I would have been lying awake thinking about what I'd done that day and what I was gonna be doing the next day. But if but you know, if even for a clinical psychologist who knows the science and is so on board without this commitment I know that I wouldn't have done it just as regularly you know I don't know what's the answer to that how can we um get over those barriers and and just
4: do it do you want, do you want my cheeky answer yeah I want sign up to them. mindful in May no but <laughs> yeah but honestly I mean so the happiness plan I would suggest if someone gets onto that and does it with a buddy accountability and community are key and that's really what inspired me to create Mindful May and that has I've really found that when people sign up together and they know that they're doing this with literally thousands of people in real time the same time for a month for a good cause that is just a really powerful motivator Mm. so for anyone listening that has that same response and i can really empathize with it it is bloody hard Uh, you really need to find ways to find community to do this And mindful may is one of them and i'd also say that you know there's a huge amount of resistance for us to actually stop and be still we spend our lives so mentally agitated that the thought of being still and stopping is is terrifying. And so there's a lot of underlying fear and resistance there. So I think what you're saying is really true and really common. Um, I know that for myself. After, you know, over a decade of doing this, I still have days where I feel like that. And one of the tricks that I use for myself, which is also in the book, is the mindful minute. So I just say, right, I'm just going to do a minute, you know, not even 10 minutes, just a minute. And I always find that when I've done the minute, oh, my God, it gives me this breathing space and I generally actually want to sit and do more so it's just finding these mental hacks to kind of get through the resistance.
1: Mm. Dr Anthea Rhodes.
4: Sorry I'm getting
5: ahead of my allocated time slot I just can't resist so what a privilege to be here next to you Elise and hear this chat today so my background is in um, with children I'm a paediatrician and I work a lot in development and behaviour and I just Um, listening to you talking about depression and just how prevalent it is now on a global scale. Particularly in my practice, I see in children increasingly as well problems with anxiety, problems with emotional regulation that are increasing and I think have their basis in lots of things that we've talked about today. So technology absolutely has a role. But I guess what I'm hearing as well is uh, how difficult it can be to start new and different practices... How can we begin with our kids and what sort of role is, is there for mindfulness there?
4: So I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, the poor thing. She's my official experiment, <laughs> experiment sort of study, but I think you know, there's lots of resources that are specific for children. So there's the Smiling Mind app, which many of the listeners probably know about. There's actually a really great resource called Generation Mindful, which has a time in toolkit. People can find that online. So there's lots of different mindfulness for children specific practices that are emerging. And I think it's really exciting because I I do believe that you can introduce this to children at a very young age. So my two and a half year old, you know, of course, I'm not you know you don't want to force meditation on any kid because they'll have that backlash to it but for me i'm even just starting to bring in this idea of connecting to the breath and when she's having a tantrum you know it doesn't always work of course but it's like okay let's just do some let's do a calm breath and sometimes it does work you know one in three times it does work and she's starting to learn it now and so we can bring these tools to people the children that are really young Yeah,
5: and I guess listening to Miss Medic before talking about the mindful walk, it's a bit like how can we have mindful habits in our day-to-day lives with our kids? And I know in other research that, that we've done on the child health poll that we'll talk about a bit later, we certainly found that parents who spent more time connecting with their children in a purposeful way regularly so most days of the week were more likely to feel like they understood their child and those children were less
4: likely to have difficulties with their emotions and behaviour. Mm-hmm. That, that's just one thing to add there I think the most powerful thing you can do for your child is actually learn mindfulness yourself there's no point trying to teach your kid mindfulness when you are just all over the place so that's what I try and do as well I make a commitment as busy as I am to try and really practice this because she picks up on that
5: mindful
2: parenting (laughs) and the i guess the other thing is that kids are naturally sort of quite mindful in their activities and i guess it just for me when we were listening to this conversation just now i think just resisting the urge to pull them away from those mindful behaviors like you know get in the car come on when they're sort of walking through the garden and picking up a leaf and doing those really mindful behaviors it's just recognizing that those sorts of things are very protective for these little developing brains and our life in general has moved so far away from those sort of um mindful tasks i mean When you manual labour is quite mindful, and so we do less of all of that now. So, just noticing when your child is doing perhaps something that's quite mindful and letting them have that time in that activity.
1: We are going to have to wrap this fascinating conversation up. Thank you, Dr. Elise Bailey. Um Mindful in May starts in May, but there's lots online about it happening in the next couple of weeks, so jump on the Facebook
4: page. Would yeah, that be mind, the best place? mindfulinmay.org. We've yep. got a free, a free week of meditation online where I'll be running live guided meditation, so mindfulinmay.org, and um, people can find out more details.
1: And the book is called The Happiness Plan, available in all good bookstores. Our next special guest, Dr. Anthea Rhodes from the RCH National Child Health Poll and also a paediatrician there. Anthea, lovely to have you back.
5: Good morning. Good to be
1: here. I was saying in the intro that uh, you feel like a good friend of the show by now. You've been in quite a few times and it's become a bit of a habit, a bit of a chat after each poll comes out, which is wonderful for us.
5: Yeah, it's great to have the opportunity to share the things we learn particularly with parents who might be listening out there. (laughs) (laughs) So the latest poll is all about
1: oral health in children. It is. The only thing I know is that um, the rates of children getting to dentists when they should is... Um, way less than it should be and so in preparation for interviewing you I have booked my son into the dentist he's booked in for next month you'll be happy to know just before his third birthday just
5: in case I was going to ask you this morning (laughs) yeah you can hand on heart say yes (laughs) what else do we need to know yeah look we're going from the mind to the mouth now but I think that um did you like the segue but I think that there are some some parallels in that one of the things that really stood out from this study is just how people don't see the mouth as part of the whole of health and well-being enough so that i think there's lots of things behind that but we found in our study that parents don't routinely get information and advice about how best to care for their kids' teeth. In fact, only one in four parents of preschoolers had been given advice by a healthcare professional, not just a dentist, but any healthcare professional, about what they needed to do to best care for their kids' teeth. Around a third of Aussie kids in preschool have never seen a dentist, and yet we have rising rates of dental decay. And, in fact, that's the most common preventable cause of hospital stays in children in Australia. So lots of messages out of this child health poll, but really about education and some focus and talking about teeth from the beginning, from the time that kids are born.
1: You might not be able to answer this, but how is it that oral health has kind of fallen off the radar? I mean, as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking, yeah, I, I've got wonderful GPs that I go to myself and with my son, and I don't think we've ever had a conversation about his oral care. How how is that?
5: That's a very complex question (laughs) that I I can't answer rapidly but it involves lots of things. It includes the way our healthcare system is structured and funded um, and oral health or you know dental care sits outside really of medicare which means that it's not viewed as part of our regular health care by consumers so patients and families and by researchers often as well so it doesn't attract the same sort of funding into research to promote and push forward those strategies that might prevent some of this disease so it's pretty complex and it really gets down to the healthcare care system being at the root of this i think <laughs>
0: Not One of the intended. fascinating things I found in this particular poll was that uh, about half of parents didn't know that tap water was better than bottled water, and I'm keen to find out why that is what yeah. your thoughts are.
5: So... As for people listening out there, tap water contains fluoride in the vast majority of places in Australia and is is safe and healthy to drink, whereas bottled water does not. There's very few products of bottled water that do have um, fluoride at a level that is protective for teeth, so building enamel and strengthening teeth to protect them from decay. And we've seen... um, recently in Australia and across the world a rapid growth in consumption of bottled water and that's now heading down into children as well. So there's a few reasons behind that. Any water is better than sugar-sweetened drinks so I think really important to get that message up front and that includes juice and flavoured milks for kids. So as part of a response from the beverage industry to the fact that people are starting to turn away from some of these sugar-sweetened drinks water is another Um, item that can be sold and is being sold but we we for lots of reasons really important to get the message out there to parents so less important for adults but very important for children when when their teeth are still growing and developing to be having tap water because it has fluoride in it which does strengthen teeth there's lots of studies that have shown it makes a significant difference to the rate of decay in children's teeth plus it's free and you can also (laughs) avoid a lot of the Waste that comes from bottled water that's a big problem for our planet, too.
1: One of the things, as I am regularly having battles with my toddler about trying to do his teeth only in the evenings not even in the mornings I don't want to hear a response to that I can just tell by the look on your face but one of the things that often pops into my head as I'm having that battle in the evening is something along the lines of Oh, they're just baby teeth. Yeah
5: they're just baby How teeth. How
1: important is it? They don't really
5: matter they're going to fall out anyway right? Well you're not alone <laughs> Can you speak to All that? Right? Around 20% of Aussie parents have that same thought and in fact belief but baby teeth have a lot of important roles in a child's health and well-being so Kids need a full set of healthy teeth to smile, sing, chew and grow and we know that if children don't have healthy teeth and that includes baby teeth through those toddler years, there can be delays in their growth and development and their nutrition and those problems can become lifelong. They can become bigger issues as they get older. they are also space savers for the secondary teeth. So if you lose all your baby teeth, early which some infants and toddlers do do they have to have them all removed because they have so much decay we found in our study that one in ten children by starting school had had at least one tooth extracted because of decay and Uh, it's important to know that that's no small procedure with children i think
2: some parents i have spoken to are really shocked that involves in general anesthetic and an admission to hospital so
5: this yeah, is... one in 20 kids in our study had had a general anaesthetic for removal of a tooth before they started school, and so that's around one per class. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of cost to our economy for that, but there's also a lot of um, you know, pain and heartache that is preventable for that child and that family. So, but those baby teeth, so they have lots of important roles, and if they come out early, then you can get problems with your alignment of your secondary teeth, and, and that becomes a bigger issue later on.
0: And more importantly, the tooth fairy doesn't come in hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to lose them at home.
5: And did that
1: work for your kids?
0: Yeah, absolutely. They you love talk- the tooth
5: fairies I'm going to jump in on the brushing issue there mm. as well. So we heard Elise say before, it's just like brushing your teeth every morning, if only <laughs> people <laughs> brush their teeth every morning. So I think that, you know, the other parallel we can draw here, it's about habit. And habits are hard and there's just no easy way around that. They just are. And they're particularly hard to form if the benefits are sort of way off and not immediately obvious to people. It's about investing now for the long term, which can be really hard when you're two year olds having a tantrum and you go, Really? Do I really have to brush these teeth? But the the hard truth is yes, and we know that brushing teeth twice a day, every day, uh significantly significantly reduces the rates of decay and that and that is from the time the tooth is first visible. So as soon as that infant cuts a tooth the toothbrush should be on it. They don't need any toothpaste until they're at one and a half, but if you can see it, brush it is the you know the simple fact and it needs to be happening twice a day. But, you know, a third of Aussie kids aren't having their teeth brushed twice a day and that's based on this poll and parent report. So we like to think our parents are honest, but, you know, many of them may not be. So that's a, a best estimate. So lots of kids not getting that basic hygiene often enough and also lots of parents when it came to young children not realising genuinely, that it needs to be done. So
1: a couple of big take-homes so far, you know, if you're handing your child something to drink tap water, it should be your number one choice where it can be. Brushing their teeth morning and night, every single day, forming that habit, if you can see it, brush it. What about going to the dentist? When should we be starting that? How frequently?
5: Yeah, so recommendations are, in fact, that all children should have a, a dental check before they turn two. So from around one, <laughs> from around one year of age, um, children need to be ideally seeing a dental professional, so a dentist or another oral health professional. There's a few reasons for that. One of them is to get in early with the advice that they're, they're not necessarily getting from other places where they could be as well, but also to build... Um, good habits to take away some of that anxiety and problems we found you know around half of kids their first visit to the dentist was for a problem so by then they've got a toothache or they've got pain then they need what might be quite a complex procedure that's an uncomfortable experience and then you set up you know a pattern of habits that means avoidance more problems less visits and on you go so by getting there early if there is early decay then that can actually be treated and turned around quite easily with some topical application of fluoride and similar sorts of things by the dentist in the chair in a matter of minutes and then things can be on the road to recovery rather than turning up a year or two later and needing three or four teeth pulled out so early visits make a difference
3: <laughs> dr malice just a question on breaking habits i mean one of the best ways is to give a reward now what would be the link that you would recommend for the two year old that you'd reward them if they do brush their you know, teeth thinking
1: smarty a smarty afterwards is
5: not <laughs> not a lolly definitely
3: that's why i'm asking you so uh,
5: i'm i'm actually it's again this is it's hard and boring parenting messaging but attention and time and positive reward are really the best things you're doing something twice a day every day you don't want to be shelling out anything too major for that as a reward so you've got to set up as you mean to go on and this comes down to any type of behavior management with kids and actually you know A bit of your time, attention, praise, well done is the best sort of habit to get into. Is it
3: it going overboard to say beyond well done, I'm so proud of you?
5: Of course not. Okay. I don't think you can ever go overboard with telling your child that you're proud of them, that they're important to you and that you've noticed that they've done something good.
4: Molly
1: Duck, really, really There's a low really quick
0: income play. scheme um, that the federal government has called the Child Dentist Benefits Scheme, which offers low income earners up to $1,000 worth of dental care. And I thought it was worth just bringing that up. Yeah, definitely. Worth thanks. So glad up.
5: you raised it. So any any parent who's um, eligible for Family Tax Benefit A, so that's around half our population or thereabouts, can access this schedule. Jump online and have a look. You can look at our website, the RCH Poll www.rchpoll.org.au. Follow the link for parents and you'll see some information there. Up to $1,000 of free dental care for kids between age 2 and 18. Lots of people don't know about it.
1: Thank you, Dr. Anthea Rhodes, an educational segment for all of us. Um, We're out of time for today and there is a room full of scientists waiting to bring you another hour of fascinating information. So, Dr. Elise Bailey, thank you for joining us. Dr. Anthea Rhodes, it's always a pleasure. Dr. Malice, Lolly Doc, Miss Medic, we will be back with you next week. Kent, fabulous pressing of the buttons. Off you go, we'll chat to you next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.